0: weather today in the ground
1: so put... they're solid plastic so don't settle for imitation
0: but the senator while insisting he was not intoxicated could not explain his nudity Good
1: evening this is karen matthews and this is the best of an alan smithy podcasts you give us 67 minutes and we'll give you 67 minutes of words, don't you talk to her about old King Kong, don't talk to her about Frankenstein, you know she doesn't come from no Black Lagoon, she's from past the stars and beyond the moon, you can keep the thing, keep it, keep the creature, they do not mean shit, from the 3rd of January 2013, it's a double feature discussion of Roger Corman's Little Shop of Horrors and Carl Monson's Please Don't Eat My Mother, because every boy needs a giant talking mean green mother from outer space.
0: My name is Sergeant Joe Fink, working a 24 hour shift out of homicide. And this is my workshop the part of town that everybody knows about but that nobody wants to see. Where the tragedies are deeper, the ecstasies wilder, and the crime rate consistently higher than anywhere else. Skid Row, my beat. Hi everyone, welcome to an Alan Smithy podcast. My name is Matt and my blog is cinemachine.blogspot.com.
1: And I'm Andrew and my blog is thestopbutton.com.
0: And this is our podcast where we get together and talk about a couple of movies or maybe just uh, one movie and we talk over it. Uh, In this case, we are doing a double feature of uh, killer plant movies, um, starting with the most famous killer plant horror comedy ever made uh, in two days, The Little Shop of (laughs) Horrors, Uh, of course, the Roger Corman original. And then we're going to be discussing a very obscure ripoff from only 12 years later called Please Don't Eat My Mother, whose main distinction from Little Shop of Horrors is that it's pornographic. Uh, and we'll get to explaining how that works. But um, to talk about Little Shop of Horrors, first off, um, I was probably, I think we were both kids last time we saw this. Yeah. I think I was- like 10 years old or something. And I had definitely seen the eighties musical and was expecting something similar, but you know, different. And as a kid, I was kind of, well, number one, a lot of the humor really flew over my head because the humor in this movie, most of it is just so deadpan, um, and verbal. And it's about like, you know, funny names and stuff as much as it is weird performances. Um, but then the other thing that really upset me as a kid is that it has an unhappy ending uh where Seymour is eaten by his own creation, the plant, and it was the first time it was probably probably like one of the first old movies I saw as a kid, so I kind of didn't get that old movies could end a lot more abruptly than modern movies do. Modern movies are really kind of like you know. Take their time easing you into the ending. Um, little Shop of Horrors is just kind of like I didn't mean it, and then and then the words "the end" pop up, and that's kind of that was kind of jarring to me as a little kid. The irony of all that, of course, is that years later, um, after kind of rediscovering the '80s musical Little Shop, I was stunned to listen to the original off-Broadway cast recording and find out that uh, in the end of the musical, the plant uh, eats everybody. And that's actually how they shot the movie. And then it tested really badly. And they filmed a happy ending at great expense where Audrey and Seymour live and the plant dies. But in any case, uh, my main thought coming back to it now is that I like it more than ever. Um, It really grows on you. And I'm not trying to make a botanical pun. (laughs) It just grows on you because everything about it is so idiosyncratic. There's really kind of... I think there's movies that aspire to have the kind of feeling that this one does, but it was just something about like the magic of the fact this movie was thrown together in like a couple of weeks and they only had two days and one night of principal photography where – everything about it just feels spontaneous and funny. And, um, it's obviously a really small movie because it was made by, you know, a notoriously cheap and small filmmaker, but that kind of gives it an intimacy. And, um, the fact that most of the movie takes place in the flower shop, and it was shot using like a two camera setup with you know just both of them running at the same time at opposite angles, it just makes like all the comedy feel. It feels like you're watching a really funny play in a way, yeah, or or just a really funny sketch. And I, more more than that, what I was going to say was that it has this kind of t- like a. It's almost like a TV sitcom that's actually funny, and. um you know bef- without without going into the content of the humor that's just kind of what makes it so good as a comedy it it has it has a real feeling of spontaneity to it because it pretty much was like a spontaneous creation uh from you know a bunch of uh, talented people
1: yeah i think that's um i didn't know it was shot in 2 days <clears throat> oh that's part heard.
0: of that's part of its legend that's i know
1: and, and you know I, I i mean i saw it yeah probably 10 you know, yeah. it's like one of those things that you're like, Oh, little shop of horrors. Um of course it got it was famous uh because Nicholson is in it and, and he's awesome. Except you watch him and you're like, Wait a minute, you mean he, he knew how to play Jack Torrance when he <laughs> what he started his career? And it's like if he'd played the Joker like he'd played the guy in this, I think it would have been even ballsier uh, because he plays a, a – a, a, Masochist. A masochist. And, I mean, it's just it's, – it's creepy, and there's, like, these great quotes from him where apparently he was interviewed for a, a Corman book, and he talks about how, yeah, I forgot when, you know, before I saw it that we shot it as a comedy, so he was, like, really thrown by that.
0: That he wasn't, that that was supposed to be a serious, that couldn't have been a serious. Well, purpose. it's like
1: he knew that it was a comedy when he shot it, but he didn't know it was. He'd forgotten because, you know, he'd been in 32 things in between because, you know, nobody thinks about the fact that Jack Nicholson actually had to work for a bit. Um, but it, it's just crazy from the start because you got Dick Miller showing up and he um, he's eating flowers. That's what he does. And everybody flips out about it in the in the first scene with him but then he becomes a fixture at the shop and you're like yeah this could be the flower shop could be a sitcom um but a really good one in a way that
0: if it actually were a sitcom that would make the character of seymour's mother a lot more excusable and that's that's, yeah that's really the weak link in the movie that's the one
1: weak link is the mom
0: not that her—it's not that she's not amusing the first time she shows up. It's just that by the time Seymour takes Audrey uh, on a date back to his house and she cooks her, she cooks them dinner and he's and she's haranguing Seymour about you know not settling down too soon. You're just kind of like, what's the point of any of this? And that's, it, actually, thats probably the biggest difference between this and the um and the off Broadway musical. Slash film is uh, when they were rearranging the characters and their relationships, they completely tossed out the mom and with good reason.
1: Well, the funniest thing about the mom is the um, and it, it's it's somewhat um, understated that everything she cooks has like medicine in it to make Seymour, you know, to make them healthy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like this funny little thing once you get it, except her scene where she's um, mean to Audrey is sort of, it overshadows the humor in that. And it's about the only time that the humor does get overshadowed like that, because who wrote it? Charles B. Griffith? Yeah. I mean, he does such a good job otherwise that 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 one scene, it's just, it's very out of place. Charles B. Griffith?
0: Charles B. Griffith is one of like the most fascinating guys who ever worked for Corman because he wrote a ton of movies, which sort of range from like the really generic Corman that people hate, like um, Gunslinger or It Conquered the World, Attack of the Crab Monsters. Uh, I think that was his. But then he also he's also written some of his best movies, um, The Wild Angels with Peter Fonda. Um, he wrote Death Race Two Thousand for goodness sake. Uh, I mean, the guy like definitely knows comedy. Uh, it's just that he never. Uh, what I was saying about how this movie is unusual, even in Corman's filmography, is that Corman really wasn't into comedy. Like he didn't. Yeah. He didn't make outright comedies, and if they were comedies, they would have to be comedy horror like this but he didn't even do much comedy horror and in fact like the most like the most common story from you know whether it's like paul Bartel making death race or um joe dante making piranha is that like they were both told like you know a little humor but not too much like you know we're our, that's not our audience our audience is coming for the genre movie stuff but Little Shop of Horrors appears to be like the one time that you know someone got to maybe because of the short length of time in which it was made. Just I mean, I'm, I'm sure this. I'm sure Griffith's script didn't go through a single revision. He just started shooting it, you know. And he's really funny. He's even in the movie. He's the um, he's the guy who uh, tries sticking up the shop and sticking up uh, Mushnik, the owner, and then Mushnick tricks him into the plant.
1: And of course. Mushnick, um, Mel Wells is sort of the unsung hero of this one because, I mean, I don't think this movie would have worked without him because Jonathan Hayes is Seymour. He's sort of an idiot. I mean, he's... Yeah. uh, Audrey's a really big idiot. But Mushnick is, he's like a combination of it. He's not that dumb, but he's... He's the most sympathetic character. I mean, he sort of is the the, the viewers. He's the only one who's horrified by what's going on because Audrey never finds out. Yeah, it's more
0: uh, just kind of a wimp who goes along with it. But yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, Mushnik's an interesting
0: character, too, because he is sort of as much of a main character as Seymour is, um, and he is a stand-in for the audience, but he's not innocent either, because he sees Seymour feeding the plant body parts one night, and he doesn't know where Seymour got the body parts from. He just assumes that Seymour went out and killed somebody, but he looks the other way, because it's doing great business for the shop.
1: Yeah, and that's the... um...
0: You you sort of realize, like, how much stuff could have been streamlined and was uh, by comparison to the 80s musical. Like, in the 80s musical, and I'm I'm not going to keep doing this, but, like, um, Mushnick never finds out. He knows that the plant is growing and it's doing great business, but Seymour doesn't tell him about what's going on. And then... Uh, he gets eaten by the plant in the 80s musical, and that's you know when he finds out, obviously. But actually, they, they copy the, uh, the stick-up scene. Seymour tricks him into Audrey by having him knock on Audrey, just like uh, Charles B. Griffith knocks on Audrey as the robber. Anyways, I'm sorry to derail it like that.
1: No, it's
0: that. all right. <sighs> um... well, Wells is so funny. And um, it's such a, uh, you know, I don't feel, maybe it doesn't need to get pointed out but like the humor in this movie is like really classic kind of borscht belt jewish dark humor um it's kind of it's it's the kind of humor that like was in mad magazine at the time but i don't think like you really saw on tv or in you know modern comedies of that era but it's really kind of i mean it doesn't seem shocking to us now but i think in 1960 to, to to have a joke like You know, you're listening to K-S-I-K, music for old invalids. I mean, (laughs) it's pretty edgy stuff.
1: Well, I mean...
0: kind of edgy now. There's also
1: the character um, of... of, uh, What's her name? City Shiva. Right, right. That's the first character we see. Yeah, and she comes into the shop, and she's trying to get a deal out of Mushnik because all of her relations are dying. And that's another one of my favorite moments in... um, in the script is uh, she makes a comment about some kid getting killed or something. And then you later on you meet the cop and he makes an offhanded remark about his son just dying in the same way. And then they have a scene together, maybe 10 minutes later. And he goes, hi, aunt city. How are you? And it's just like, this is one of the,
0: you want to talk about your small movies. Everybody in this movie knows each other. <laughs>
1: And you watch it, and it it felt like really oh, some flavor. Um, what did it, it felt like what they had to force in something like the Naked Gun, mm-hmm. except here they're doing it totally naturally, and they're not waiting. They never, you know, there's no waiting for the uh, the audience to laugh. In Little Shop, which is an interesting move since there are so many um, jokes at a certain yeah. point. yeah, And they never wait for the audience to laugh. They just keep going. It's that kind of humor where,
0: again, speaking to the fact that this movie was pretty much made on a lark, um, it's like the actors are just, you know, entertaining themselves and each other with these characters. Like, you know, look at, look at these weirdos who we get to play. Let's, you know, play off of each other. I love when... Um, Dick Miller, uh, meets, uh, Mel Wells and he, you know, he, he says, uh, name, my name is Bur- Burson Fouch and he goes, excellent. I am Gravis Mushnick. And he goes, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> like, kind of almost forth a little bit, just kind of like commenting on his name, like, "Oh, that's a good one," because this movie is full of ridiculous names. Everybody's name is City Shiva or Seymour Krelboin or or uh, Burson Fouch. What's the dentist's name? Oh, the
1: dentist. Yeah, the dentist. They didn't keep his name for the remake. Uh, Phobius Farb, and of yeah. course, uh, Jack Nicholson's name is Wilbur Force, and I think he even spells it. Um,
0: not not Wilbur Force. My first name is Wilbur. My last name is Force. Yeah, and
1: of Lenora Clyde. That's that's uh, she's an interesting one. That is the scene. I think that in a lot of ways, that's my favorite uh, moment of.
0: Um, it's the rain on the rhubarb. You know? Of um, the script.
1: Of- No, of Corman's direction is when he introduces uh, Lenora Clyde at the end, and she's apparently a loose woman throwing herself at Seymour. Um,
0: Prostitute.
1: Well, no, because she says she'll do it for free, and he's like, you'll do it for free? Wow, let's go! Um, something like that. And I mean, it's just this really weird scene where she keeps crawling into the frame wherever he goes. And you're like, it felt like a car. It felt like a cartoon for a second because she just kept appearing.
0: Right. It's kind of the one point, like pretty late in the movie, but eventually where Corman's just like, this thing's a live action cartoon. I'm just going to, you know, yeah. break, break of physics and direct this like a cartoon a little bit.
1: And that was really funny how he does that. And the other thing that I love is the um, the chase scene at the end through the tire factory.
0: Oh, that that I feel like is the other weak link besides Seymour's mom.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: it's just because it's not
1: funny. It just, well, it's not funny, but it's so good. I mean <laughs> that that's what that's what threw me by it. You're sitting there watching this scene and. The, <clears throat> There's, you know, trivia about how they got into the tire factory or whatever, but they're going through the tire factory, and it's probably about a five-minute scene, and they do play it for maybe not laughs, but smiles, because Seymour's hidden in tires and crap like that, but Corman's direction of it, because he's so confined for the rest of the movie um, with the setups in the shop... (laughs) That his direction of the tire scene you're watching I was watching it and I'm like this is like watching killers kiss that chase scene at the end you know it's like about the only time I've ever compared Kubrick to Corman or Gorman to Kubrick but I really liked how good he was in that scene um, yep. even though yeah it does not fit it, it drags out the ending is what it does it it, give, it gives you the expectation <clears throat> that there's gonna be um, more of an ending and there's not once yeah. everybody gets back from the chase scene and it's a very strange ending and then they go for a good joke that um seymour gets eaten at the end um
0: one thing i do like in that uh ending chase scene at the very end is uh, again speaking to transgressive humor for the time that doesn't seem transgressive now um people always point out the fact that in psycho uh you know um janet lee uses a toilet and flushes it and audiences never saw toilets being flushed uh back then well little shop of horrors came out the same year as psycho and you've got seymour uh seymour's head poking up from out of a toilet bowl in the uh, (laughs) again you know yeah Shit, but uh at the time that wasn't something that you got to see in the movie toilet humor. Of, <laughs> of even the most rudimentary sticking your head up out <laughs> of water.
1: Um yeah, and that that also played a little the cartoon thing. Um the chase scene has problems because uh, you've got um Gravis telling the cops that they're not gonna find Seymour. Um, and it's so obvious that they could find him if they looked for two more minutes that you have to wonder for a second is Gravis being sympathetic to see more what's going on with that. Um,
0: yeah, why is he along with the cops on that chase?
1: It, it's a little distracting. I assume he was actually along with the cops on the chase because they knew how funny Mel Wells was in this.
0: Yeah, well... <laughs> Says they fire the gun or whatnot um actually speaking of the cops uh the cops are a parody of dragnet which you know in 1960 was a very topical parody um but like i think two two of the funniest lines in the whole movie come from the cops um what's kind of odd about them is that the very beginning of the movie opens up with (laughs) dragnet style narration setting the scene in in skid row but then the cops don't show up until halfway through the movie uh but then when they do, um, one of the funniest lines is, uh, like, they're stepping away, hey, Joe, you know, hey, Frank, how's the family? Um, uh, Lost one. Oh, yeah! That.
1: That's like, the dead kid, yeah!
0: playing with. <laughs> and then they go on to the next item of business, and then it's, yeah, the dead kid who gets reference. So we got dead dead kid humor in this movie as well. Um, I remember watching this, with- <laughs> it was, like, one of the jokes that it was too deadpan for a 10-year-old, and, like... <laughs> That up and an
1: oh, you watched it with your dad too. I watched it with my dad.
0: Oh, what is it with that? Yeah.
1: I think it is a dad. It is a. It is one of those rites of passage movies where they're like, "No, you guys need to, you know, be open to older movies. Watch this; it's great." And you know, yeah, he, we don't the, get it. You know,
0: it's a way older movie, but I think maybe. Like for teenagers, it might be more effective than for little kids who are just fans of the Little Shop musical. Um, oh, and then the other really funny uh, joke from the cops is um, when they come back into the movie later on, their narration Dragnet style resumes, and he goes, My name's Fink, Sergeant Joe Fink. Um, <laughs> that's That line is straight out of Mad Magazine at the time. Um, I mean and there's of course there's tons of Yiddish, you know, like Fischlugner plant. Um I used to say fischlugner and mad, but that's mostly from uh from Mushnick. And um
1: yeah. I think there were um I think when I was reading up on it, there were some concerns about it being perceived as um too not anti Semitic, but riding the Jewish humor thing too much. And I was, the,
0: saw that too. I was surprised. Um, I but, think
1: that's got to be because nobody else did it at the time, and now it's old I mean good grief, you know like there's less Jewish humor in this than there is in three minutes of jerry Jerry Stiller <laughs> on a Seinfeld episode i mean it's
0: right but back then you didn't see you uh, didn't
1: see it because it was it was um
0: you didn't see an hour or so of Mel Wells uh, you know barking at people in an Eastern European accent.
1: Oh, God, the spelling in the shop. Did you Thanks. notice that?
0: And saying things like, Oy, we should live so long. Um, <laughs> or the fact that there are signs like, We don't letting you spend so Right, much.
1: exactly. I loved those. <laughs> but all I could wonder was, Who came up with those? I mean, this is the, this is, um, I know Corman's done some commentaries, and it sounds like uh, Charles B. Griffith has talked about this a lot. And it, To the point, there's got to be a book about it, but... Yeah, I mean, you're looking at the signs, and it's just like, you keep looking at it going, wait, no, I can I can figure out what they're trying to – no, I can't figure out what they're trying to say. What are they trying to say? Because the signs make – they're they're not really – they're fake non-sequiturs. I mean, it's just great.
0: Flowers cheap, signs like that. Uh, uh, yeah, and uh, we're, we're almost out of time, are I we think. we almost
1: out of time on this one, let's see.
0: Oh, maybe we got 5 or so minutes left but I uh, I just want to yeah. you know try to get to everything. Um I love the uh the odd synchronicity of Mr and Mrs Futterman being in this movie and they're not a couple but I like to think that you know you know you know how um Seymour says that he named the plant Audrey Jr and then uh and then Mrs Futterman says, "Well Seymour, that's the most exciting thing anyone's ever done to me." And then <laughs> Seymour poor- i like to think that after this movie uh, took place, you know, Odd um, Aud- Burson changed their names and became Miss- Mr. and Mrs. Futterman. <clears throat> well, I Hired- mean,
1: given Hired- that he um, he ate plants, I mean, he probably was persecuted and had to change his name.
0: Um but Jackie Joseph uh, was was a cutie pie back in the day, and she's still kind of cute as an old lady in Gremlins. But when you see her as a young lady in this, she's uh, she's quite adorable. It's- and
1: that's kind of the funny thing about it is, is that why it takes until, I'd say, what, her... Definitely the, by the dinner scene, but not in her first scene, before you realize she's supposed to be an idiot. <laughs> and but that's kind of like the weird thing is, is that... That's why Mushnik is so sympathetic is is cuz he's not as dumb as everybody it, else.
0: Surrounded by dolts. <laughs> yeah, in the um in the 80s musical they changed her from being a a a dumbbell to just a uh you know, a a battered woman, it's a big step up, but still kind of a bimbo, but I don't know with a heart of gold. You can't really say she's a bimbo in this because she's not like a sex pot. She's actually like, you know, the sweet girl next door. Um, But I think one of the improvements on the story is uh, in the 80s version is that they put Audrey in jeopardy. And, um, you know, as it is, it's kind of like, you know, you know, I asked why is Seymour's mom in the movie. Well, she's in the mom she's in the movie so she can uh so th- she can dislike Audrey and why is Audrey in the movie so that something can come between Seymour and his mom. It's kinda like they've got this triangle between them that doesn't add anything to the story of a killer plant. Um and speaking of the killer plant itself, um it's it's really one of the most delightfully cheap hand puppets in the history <laughs> It's. I love to hear the, the, the plaster jaws like clopping together like horseshoes as the uh, taping. Apparently that's, apparently like Charles B. Griffith was just like reading the lines for the plant off screen to the actors and then they kept his voice because Corman's cheap and because <laughs> it's funny. But that's Charles Griffith as the voice of the plant. And um, I think one of the oddest things about the movie is uh, um, they don't explain where the plant came from. There's a joke about you know, Seymour got the bulb from a Japanese gardener working next to a cranberry patch, which is apparently a...
1: Uh, yeah, I a, saw that too, that it's a reference to a cran- Yeah.
0: cranberry sales dropping because of rumors of pesticides or something. But yeah, there's no explanation for the plant, which just kind of makes it all the odder that, you know, uh, you've just got this talking plant. It didn't come from space like in the 80s version or anything like that. It's just, uh, it just is, you know much like everything else in the movie it just kind of is that's that's how it happens <coughs> uh, yeah. and um yeah what else can you say about this i mean there's there's a lot to say but um uh other miscellany um oh funny names hortense fish twanger yeah, yeah.
1: and the um it's it's unfortunate that the, the teenage girls who think Seymour is adorable don't get a – um, only one of them gets a name. And they're really funny because, you know, Seymour is sort of displayed as this – that no ladies would like Seymour. But then all of a sudden these two teenage girls just think he's the cutest thing ever and he doesn't know how to deal with it. It's a very funny little uh, turn in uh, the movie. Created
0: Audrey Jr. Actually, one of the little moments – between the actors that I keep on repeat doing, when they are pawing at Seymour, um, watch Jackie Joseph. She's very protective of him, <laughs> like a hey, layoff man. You little teeny bops. Um Yeah, no, they're they're funny. Uh, it's I, I hadn't noticed that only one of them is credited with a name, but yeah, they're funny because they they each other's sentences and they're peppy and then they do have a joke that pays off pretty well because the um, the flowers on the plant bloom and it's the faces uh, it's supposed to be the faces of the victims but the the plaster casts are really bad you just kind of have to take their word for it but <laughs> and they go oh wow now our now our float will be perfect yeah Another sick joke um actually uh I want to put over, I haven't seen this in almost as long as I haven't seen Little Shop, but Little Shop actually had a precursor. um, In in regards to everything we were just talking about, like, you know, Corman doing comedy, a horror comedy, you know, weird material for the time. Um, A Bucket of Blood was made the year before this and actually stars Dick Miller in the kind of Seymour role. And it's actually like a a very pointed satire of of beatniks and the beatnik art and poetry and music culture of the time, which alone makes it you know like worth checking out as a as a document. But it's Charles B. Griffith writing the script again. It's it's every bit like as well. All right, I haven't seen it in a long time, so I can't say if it's as funny. But if you like Little Shop, you owe it to yourself to check out A Bucket of Blood because it was Corman producing and directing. Charles Griffith did the script and it's a, a similar type of story it's like the uh the faustian or um yeah the faustian bargain bargain uh, story because in in a bucket of blood instead of uh Seymour feeding people to a man eating plant to drum up business uh um Dick Miller is a schlubby janitor at a coffee house. And in order to impress the beatnik artists, um, he starts murdering people and using, and like, it's like House of Wax, you know, like using the victims as uh, sculptures. And the beatniks love it. And there are some really funny scenes with like fake beatniks doing fake beatnik poetry. And like, it's some of the funniest stuff you've heard. You don't see any of that in, uh, in Little Shop, but, um, yeah, another Charles, Charles B. Griffith's other great comedy screenplay. And it stars Dick Miller, too. And, and Dick Miller better than, you know, Jonathan Hayes. Let's be real and here. And,
1: of course, Dick Miller turned down the lead in this one, um, which I guess is a good decision because you remember the supporting cast more than you remember Jonathan Hayes um, because he is sort of the cartoon protagonist. Uh, the other thing is, of course, these are – you can get – bucket of blood um everywhere too it's uh corman didn't copyright it either (laughs) and
0: he yeah he's notorious you know he's a penny pincher and a (laughs) entrepreneur. everybody talks about what a shrewd businessman he has he he is you have to wonder how several of his movies from the 50s and 60s fall into public domain
1: well especially this one um and i guess this one became almost immediately popular in its second double billing and so he he must have felt the lack of money right away. <laughs>
0: yeah, and then he sells the uh you know the stage rights to to the movie for like a pittance and then <laughs> to grow. Well, you know, <laughs> when he- when when you've but still, when you're Roger Corman, when you've worked with as many, you know, talented people and as many successful projects as you have, you know. And he, he did
1: launch a lot of careers. I mean, this one okay. whether or not this this participated in launching Nicholson's career, it, it was certainly instrumental in getting him to the point where he was. Um and of course he did Corman did directly launch a lot of other people's careers, so yeah.
0: You could even say that um he indirectly launched uh alan menken and howard ashman's careers the uh songwriters who did the musical. because after that they went on to a lot of success writing songs for disney movies and uh that's that's my that's my theory <laughs>
1: uh and and now i guess we'll segue into a movie that launched no one's career um <clears throat> well yeah yeah
0: um so- First of all, okay, please don't eat my mother. Um, point, point number one, it's really just an anecdote. I don't know why, but I always thought this movie was British. Um, I guess I figured it was because I didn't think that an American exploitation producer would have the gumption to so directly intrude on Corman's turf, Um so it had to have been made overseas. And I was totally expecting a British movie right up until I started, you know, please don't eat my mother. And like the opening shot is of Los Angeles. Um, interesting. There actually are more than a handful of parallels to the original little shop. Um, the first of which I'll point out now, they both take place in Los Angeles. Um, LA skid row, uh, in, in little shop of horrors and it's Los Angeles here. Um, Okay, uh, point number two. This is pornography. We've never really watched pornography. No.
1: Um
0: I thought it was going to be soft porn and, you know, with, like, you know, tits and maybe a little genitalia, but there is male genitalia in this, and actually, oddly enough, I don't know, I, I couldn't tell if there was actual screwing or not. I think it might have been, like, actual full frontal nudity, but no actual penetration.
1: Yeah, and... The funny thing about this is I'd never heard of it till you mentioned it, but like six people have done in depth reviews of the, the sinister cinema D V D release. Right. And they basically all have that same response. They're like, I thought it was gonna be this soft core thing and then Whoa. And then whoa. there's a
0: <laughs> But it's I mean softcore porn is made to titillate Men, so why if if you're not even having actual if you're not even paying the actors to uh, to have sex, why pay them to why pay the guy to get naked?
1: I have a theory about this. Right. Um, I think that that first scene, um, because okay, so the Seymour character, the lead character, who's also very stereotypically Jewish, to the point where they. The mother's Irish and she berates him for being half Jewish because she married a Jewish guy. Um It's it's it's
0: it's, <clears throat> it's kind of Jew hating, but it's also kind of hilarious. Her line is um <laughs> uh, uh, something like, you know don't blame me, I didn't I didn't make you Jewish, your father did.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's like it yeah, it'd be it'd be it'd be um well, the the producer, I guess, is sort of an infamous uh, Skid Row or the 70s producer, Jewish guy. And I felt – I you got to wonder if he was just like, ha-ha. You know, you'd almost hear him laughing at, you know, the idiots who paid to see his movie. But, okay, so the first scene, I think that that was for something else because – okay, so the, the Seymour is a peeping Tom – and I think that all, most of the scenes that he peeped on were shot for something else. That makes a lot of sense. And then they, because he's peeping on this scene and he comes back like one or two more times, including this really weird time where he runs into a fellow peeping Tom and they like, the guy keeps touching him and he's like, whoa, dude, whoa. And they like share sandwiches like it's a thing. Um, but there are no establishing shots. And there are some establishing shots later on when he, he cons one of these couples into getting eaten, to, uh, fed to his plant. So I think that they had that scene at the beginning and they cut it, they cut it up to fit this movie. And that,
0: that, that, that would explain a lot. That would explain everything.
1: But I, this was also shot in like two sets. um, the main character wears the same pair of clothes the entire – he wears the same set of clothes the entire movie, and I guess that's like – there was uh, – that's –
0: Everyone in Little Shop, to be fair. And – yeah. See, that scarf, even though it's probably very hot outside. Um, the main character – please don't eat my mother, by the way, is Henry Fudd. <laughs> and there don't there don't appear to be any other funny names in, in uh, the cast, but um, I guess it kind of shows that – Carl Monison was a fan of Little Shop. This actually kind of reminds me of, like, when I was in high school, I bought a porno parody of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and it was actually, like, a really meticulous homage to Texas Chainsaw, like, after, like, copied shots and lines of dialogue, and, and it followed the plot really faithfully. And this is actually, like, a perfect analog in that, you know... Just because you're a porno producer doing a pornographic parody of something doesn't mean that you didn't choose the subject of your parody because you, you know, didn't like it, you know. I think Carl Monison was a fan of Little Shop of Horrors because one of the other odd parallels to the original is uh, the mom. I mean it's right there at yeah. the type. Please don't eat my mother. And that actually would have made the original Little Shop of Horrors uh, better if at some point Seymour's mom was eaten by Audrey Jr. But the weird thing about Please Don't Eat My Mother is that it's not even it's not even a matter of suspense for very long. Um, Henry Fudd's mother is eaten by the plant halfway through the movie.
1: Did you notice how homophobic it was? Not not to jump topics a little. uh, I mean, I agree that eating the mother was good. I mean, eating the mother in this one was... Because the mother's in this one a lot. And...
0: The mom and Little Shop.
1: She's she's in it so much more than the mom and Little Shop. She's so annoying. To the point that she's on the phone with her friend talking shit about their basement-dwelling sons, basically. And that's another interesting thing about this is, is that this phenomenon where you... It, it's, like, popular to make jokes about guys who live in their parents' basements. Um The right. boomerang children, sort of grown up a little, whatever. Um This is 1973, and you've got these... It's, like, an acknowledged situation where you have loser sons who live at home. Yeah. Because the mom's on the phone with her friend. And there's this, there's this one point where the mom's like, yeah, I'm calling you again. Cause her friend on the other end of the phone who we don't hear is, you know, upset is unhappy that she's getting yet another phone call from this annoying woman. And so when the the mother finally does get eaten, it and it's not like finally does. I think she gets eaten about 40 minutes in. Isn't this really actually very long for what it is too? I think it's, it's 98 freaking minutes. That's right. Yeah. Oh, and it's, I'm sorry. It's not sinister cinema. It was uh, something weird, um, released it on DVD. Amazingly
0: but, got dragged up Carl Monison for a commentary track. It looks like, um, but yeah, Please Don't Eat My Mother is like 25 minutes longer than Little Shop, so talk about the brevity of wit. With so
1: many less characters. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> it's 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 painful. Um
0: Let's count naked people as characters. Then it's a very well-rounded cast.
1: that's, that's kind of true. Um, I guess I don't because most of them don't have lines till the end though when they they finally have some sympathetic characters. But one of the things that I found when I was reading about this after I finished watching it was is that um, yeah, Buck Cartillion, which is apparently his real name, or if it isn't, nobody knows what his real name is.
0: But Charles B. Griffith's name. Um,
1: he, uh, he, people are like, no, he was a real actor, and then he did this. And they're like, he was a real actor because he was in um, – what was he in? He was in – Cool Hand Luke for like a second. Nobody's going to remember him. He was one of the guys in Cool Hand Luke. He was one of the guys in, he was an ape in Planet of the Apes. So he was Julius in Planet of the Apes, which, you know, he got a name, so he must have been pretty high up there. And people were, were talking about how he was, uh, by people I mean the six people who reviewed the, <laughs> the DVD review. They were talking about how he was, you know, was his, he didn't have a bad film career. And no. then he did this, and a few years later, he did a kid show um, called The Monster Squad, where he mm-hmm. was the werewolf in 76, <laughs> you know? And it's like, it, it comes back to that anecdote that I've, oh shit, I've seen Magicians. He was in Magicians. I've seen that movie too, Wow. I mean, he's very familiar looking, and that's probably because he was on, you know, like ER and Batman and all sorts of TV shows. But
0: I like that uh, his second to last credit in two thousand and five is on an episode of How I Met Your Mother.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, and he,
0: please don't eat her.
1: He, he's not gone. Um, but it's it's um, he was on he was on a Curb Your Enthusiasm. In fact, I watched. The oh, Ted wow. and Mary one, you know, within the last six months when I was watching. Yeah, TV.
0: he was shoe repair guy.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm sure Larry had some problems with him. So it's <laughs> it's that anecdote of uh, what's his name from uh, Breaking Bad? Um, Brian Cranston's anecdote that I, I know I've mentioned on the podcast at least once that when you made movies in the seventies, you didn't really worry about people seeing them. And so, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, he, no, it's, that's true, and that's funny. I'm sure I'm sure his uh you know, talking to a puppet in this movie prepared him for his kids show roles and um yeah. let's you know, let's talk about the Holy shit, talk about he the was in Jim
1: Wait, we gotta stop. He was in Jim ha. <laughs>
0: <laughs> As the cod. Well, you know what? I take back any bad things I might have said about him. He's all right. All mind.
1: right. Okay, so yeah, the puppet. You know, let's get to the puppet. Wow. Here.
0: Okay, so I know I said that Audrey Jr. is, you know, one of the most lovable, crappy puppets. Um, this is one of the most unlovable, crappy puppets in B movie history. Because, um, well, what's really odd is that it. Uh, It's implied that the reason he buys the flower one day on a whim uh, in the opening scene is that it looks like a vagina. And sure enough, when when it starts talking to him as Audrey Jr. talked to Seymour, it has a sexy woman's voice. And he even comments on it like, wow, you know, your voice is beautiful. Uh, And then I don't remember the – first thing that he feeds it to make it grow big maybe it's just bugs but yeah i think so by the time it gets to be about you know torso sized he there's a really creepy scene where he tries to like make out with it and the plants like what the hell are you doing i'm a plant and it becomes this weird psychosexual thing it's like because it's a porno they have to psychosexualize the guy's relationship to the plant it can't just be you know feed me it it has to be like this plant is my woman and she's hungry so i'm going to please her by feeding her and it turns out that this woman plant um likes female humans more than male humans and she likes you know beautiful young girls which gives you know an excuse to have him go and look for them um but it's just such a bad puppet i mean it's really I guess objectively it's no worse than Audrey Jr. It's just, it's just that um Audrey Jr. is not elaborate. It's a big set of jaws. This the Please Don't Eat My Mother plant is a little more excuse me, elaborate in that um it's got like a big flapping it's got it's got sharp teeth, uh and a big flapping mouth, and it has about fifty times as much dialogue as Audrey Jr. I mean There's a kind of economy to feed me, you know, when you when your plants just going, feed me, feed me. You don't have to work the jaws that much. But in this, it's like, oh, my God, just, you know, yap, 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 yap. And uh, yeah, it's it's not a good puppet. And then what's even weirder is at the end of the movie, he finds another plant just like it, which is a male. And then they're a couple. And then in the ending shot of the movie, it's implied that he's for some reason uh, henry fudd is compelled to spread these new man-eating plants all over the city which uh kind of predates the uh, ending to the 80s little shop musical where audrey 2 propagates itself and spreads out to every household in america in a plot for world domination but yeah um it's it's weird i i, I guess that's kind of what if I had read in a book that this was just a, a rip-off of The Little Shop of Horrors, I probably wouldn't have been that interested in seeing it eventually. But I think the thing that sold me was that whatever review I read of this mentioned that the plant had a sexy female voice. And I was like, <laughs> that, that sounds too weird. I have to see this at some point.
1: It, it is – well, so <laughs> – I watched this before I watched Little Shop. And I had not I vaguely remember the musical. Um vaguely. I mean, I probably haven't seen the musical version of the movie since I was I was reading about it and yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going to watch the director's cut now that it's available and all that, but yeah, I think I probably watched it when I was 9, you know, cuz there's a huge video hit or whatever. So I didn't remember that Audrey Ju- Audrey 2 in the musical wasn't female. And huh. so when I'm watching this I'm like, "Oh, yeah, of course the the it makes sense, you know. It would be a female plant for the <laughs> And then you watch, and so I watch this, and I'm like, this is kind of whatever, okay. And then you go back and watch the original Little Shop, and you're like, no, it works better this way. Um, Corman and Griffith knew what they were doing uh, compared to these guys. But in some ways, for the cheap – I can't believe I'm saying that Little Shop isn't cheap, but for the cheap joke, it's it's funnier for it to be a woman because it plays into – the character's inherent um, insecurities. It it plays into the caretaker's inherent insecurities.
0: That's 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 a good point. Actually,
1: yeah. Um, so I was, but I was it, yeah.
0: But you know, it's funny. It's like the relationship between Seymour and Audrey Jr. and uh, Henry and I don't remember what the talking. I don't even know if the F's plan days. has a name. And yeah, maybe I don't think it. Does oh well, maybe it does. Anyways, Damn. the difference between their two relationships though is that it's like, um, Seymour. They try to walk a really delicate line, and to the most part, succeed in the original Little Shop. Uh, around the problem of having to have Seymour feed dead people to the plant, but not making him unsympathetic. Um, and it's and it's ridiculous. I mean, uh, because. Basically, he kills two people by accident, and then the third person, the dentist, um, it's like self-defense. The dentist is coming at him with a drill, and they sword fight with the drills a little bit, and it's you know so cartoony that you kind of forgive Seymour. Um, but uh, Henry Fudd in Please Don't Eat My Mother is really unsympathetic because um, before he starts uh, taking women to be fed to the to his plant uh he has no problems whatsoever with rounding up a bunch of cats and dogs to yeah feed. and he's not bothered in the least bit by how disturbing this is and also there's no i mean you know in in the original little shop uh seymour's gonna lose his job if the plant doesn't grow but What's going to happen to Henry if he doesn't feed the lady plant? It's not like she's going to have sex with him, anyways. She, you know, she's a plant. I guess we're just supposed to believe that he's so desperately lonely that he'll do anything to please the one woman in, in his life, even if that woman is a man-eating plant. Which, as you say, is you know perhaps something that they could have worked into the original uh, Little Shop of Horrors. But with this one, it's like, no, nah, they just. I'm. I doubt if they were concerned about keeping Henry sympathetic or not. He's sad to see his mother get eaten. Sure. But it's not even like that's the last straw, you know, he just keeps on feeding the plant afterwards. And, uh, yeah, he's just a creep, just a really unlikable creep.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Which sort of plays into my whole, the producer was making fun of the audience (laughs) aspect of this because, It is very, I mean, it's not funny. There's a, the director shows up as a cop at some point.
0: That's Carl Monson? Yeah. Oh, it's just like Charles B. Griffith showing up as the robber.
1: Yeah, except he's supposed to be a stand-in for um, Columbo. He's supposed to be like an Irish Columbo.
0: Again, parallels, you know, it's like the Dragnet parody in the original.
1: And you'd think if they were going to do it, they'd do it. A real um, sort of way, uh, a real rip of that, you know, with the same opening and that sort of thing. But they really don't.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of the opening, uh, I don't want to. Sorry about all the sniffling and coughing. I think we both have colds in this episode. But anyways, uh, opening of "Please Don't Eat My Mother," the uh, homophobia that you mentioned. It's it's actually probably the only somewhat funny thing in the whole movie because it's very old-fashioned like 60s 70s you know faggot humor as in like just ridiculously mincing queen kind of yeah. you know totally gay over the top uh humor that you you can't do now i mean ascot swishy stuff uh, a swishy ascot wearing Gay guy is the person who sells uh, the plant to uh, to Henry Fudd, and he is, I think, kind of playing on his sexual insecurity uh, as he does it. If you want to see a much better, exa- I can't believe I'm quoting this, but <laughs> if you want to see a much better example of this kind of humor, um, check out the totally almost humorless, bleak and horrifying ex horror movie don't go in the house because there's a scene where the schlubby killer in that movie goes to this movie was made in 79 and he goes out to buy like disco duds and the guy selling it to him is not you know a camp queen comedy figure but he's definitely gay and he's definitely like playing on the insecurity of this schlubby straight guy to sell him crap that he doesn't need and it's funny
1: doesn't um Buck Cartillion or whatever the hell his name is, doesn't he get a ride home with like the UPS man who's hitting on him too? Huh. I think that's... he does. Yeah.
0: So like really early in the movie, that's like the first or second time you see him coming home. He's he's hitching a ride with a UPS guy, and and there's a shot of the UPS guy, and he's like supposed to be gay, or we gather. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it,
1: they're really.
0: This movie's a good example of trying to like when movie when comedy makers are trying to fit in so much bad taste for its own. <laughs> that what is, is to make sense. <laughs> I,
1: yeah. And I don't think, I mean, it's just, <laughs> there's just really no good jokes. And I mean, it's just painful because you've got to realize we're only talking about, The actual scenes in the damn movie, we're not talking about the, what would you say, a quarter of it is these terribly strung together sex scenes. Yeah.
0: And. Well, probably the worst of them and the only one that actually, uh, you know, was filmed for this movie because (laughs) he interacts with the people. Um, It's just so absurd. There's like, basically this sex scene starts between a couple who are supposed to be like his neighbors. Um, and he's peeping on them at first, of course. And this whole sex scene plays out. And then when it ends, the couple gets into this argument. I don't even remember about what, but it's not about anything particularly important. It's, I guess they're breaking up. Um, and the girl gets mad and kills her boyfriend, except it's so slight and so thoughtless. It's like, it's like a weird dream more than anything, and then even weirder is Henry pops up and says, "Like, hey, if you're not going to do anything with your dead boyfriend's body, you know, I have a way to uh, to take care of that for you." And she's like, "Oh, really?" And then she comes back to the to his room with him, and you know, shortly thereafter. Uh, she – oh, well, the irony is that she gets eaten before he can have sex with her just when he was finally going to get laid.
1: It's kind of like the 40-year-old virgin, yeah. Um,
0: <sighs> I think the 40-year-old virgin was inspired uh, by this.
1: The 40-year-old virgin would have been better if it had been inspired by this. Um, yeah, it's
0: just – That's the only sex scene in the movie. <sighs> say has any relevance to the rest of the story but the rest of it really is probably as you said cut in from
1: well no i think there's one scene with the people at the park because you guys okay so you're we're not going to tell you to watch this fucking movie um
0: maybe with a commentary if you get this something weird dvd that might make maybe
1: you... but i mean what if uh, Monson, like, defends it. Like, what if he's like Jim Wynorski? I, I, I've i bitched about that before, where you're like... What is it, the Return of Swamp thing commentary? Where Jim is telling you what a good actress fucking Heather Locklear is. And you're like, wow, Jim Wynorski smokes crack while he records audio commentaries. Um, I think that's that's a different, you know, subject. But I think the problem with audio commentaries since DVD is that it doesn't matter if anybody has anything valid to say, but you actually cannot understand how these scenes are cut together. Like the main character will be walking down the street and he will like, just see a couple doing it in the park, even though he's not near a park. (laughs) Right. And then he'll come back.
0: Psychic. He's having a three days later, a park nearby. And,
1: And they're they're picking up right where they left off at the cut.
0: Oh yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it's just it's
0: probably probably a sure sign that um, uh, Carl Monson was just shooting sex scenes, you know, because he knew that he'd be able to use them later for something else.
1: Yeah, I guess uh, the produ- the executive producer, the the Harry Nelvac guy. I guess um, he's sort of credited with being the the one with the brains not to release this with a rating or whatnot.
0: How could you have?
1: Well, it was pretty funny because I watched I watched this as I was finishing up that um, what's that book we were talking about? Um, Shock value. Shock value, and it was. Uh, vaguely talking about the sort of exploitation releases of the the early 70s. And that, yeah, he was able to get this out there because he he didn't um, he didn't rate it. What's interesting is that the UK, it was cut down to meet an 18 rating. I almost wish we could have watched that one because it would have probably been 20 minutes shorter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, um... It's
0: not good is what we're trying to say. We're trying
1: to say, I mean, when the best performance in the movies from the, the, the final victim girl.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Let's just, let's just call this for little shop obsessive completists only. And if you're, and if you're an obsessive completist fan of little shop of horrors, you may as well track down episodes of the short lived Saturday morning cartoon to watch before you, uh, before you track down, please don't eat my mother. Uh, the cartoon will be harder to find, but your time will probably have been better spent. with Ex- a ra-
1: <laughs> <laughs> the- it, no one- Unless you want to see a guy's flaccid member. There you go. There yeah. you go. Yeah, if you want to see that, if you want to see 38 <laughs> seconds of this awkward, like, why are you showing me this? And I think they're like, because we can. Like, yeah. It's like it's this is a movie like if George Costanza made a movie on Seinfeld, this would be the movie.
0: Interesting comparison.
1: I don't know where that came from.
0: Yeah. But well I, it, would, it would probably have just as much anti Semitism if it was made <laughs> by George Costanza. <laughs> is that a good place to leave off on? I think I
1: don't I d I think we've been dragging on this as much as we can. Um oh wait, hold on, let me bitch about the photography. Just to go out on a classy note. Um, it doesn't
0: show you how ugly the interior decoration of the seventies was.
1: It does show you how yeah, I mean, but not how ugly movie design was. How ugly whoever's freaking house they shot this was
0: This was just somebody's house. <laughs>
1: it's just somebody's house and it's an ugly fucking house. Um but they shoot like they try to shoot day for night. And the movie does not have a credited cinematographer, so we're going to assume that it's Jack Bennett camera operator. Yeah, it's really bad day-for-night photography. And I think Day for Night was 73, too, right? The movie? <laughs> the, the movie by, uh, yes, it was. The Truffaut's movie, Day for Night, uh, came out in 1973, and this is a wonderful example of terrible Day for Night. Um what?
0: I, I forgot, uh, or I almost forgot. Um, one, of, I think that there is a joke credit in in the opening credits that's funnier than anything in the movie that follows. Uh, the grip, and this is like, this is supposed to be a camera joke, but the grip is listed as uh, F Stop Fitzgerald.
1: Hold on, that might not be. That's not. That's that's real. He's Wait a minute. A, yeah, no, he's a, he's a photographer. I had this. No, this came up at work.
0: This guy's done, like, 14 looks-like pornos between... Yeah, but he's
1: a real fucking photographer. Hold on. I'll tell you what he did right now. Hold on. Because this came up at work.
0: Yeah, no, I'm looking at his IMDb. I can't believe this is a real guy.
1: Hold on, hold on. Where is it? This came up at work because... What the fuck did he do? I was at work three weeks ago, and somebody was talking to me about... Uh, uh, a Ken Follett who writes books uh, a Ken yeah here it is Pillars of the Almighty <laughs> Ken Follett who, who writes historical fiction and he wrote a bunch of fucking spy novels that got turned into movies and I used them as a joke for a short film in, in, in school once but there's this book called Pillars of the Almighty photographs by F. Stop Fitzgerald this fucking guy has gone on to make to do a book of pictures of cathedrals. Wow. There you go. You learn yeah. something new every day here at the st- at, uh, an Alan Smithy Podcast. Um,
0: and, and in 2008, he was the gaffer for Asia Noir 6 Evil Sex Trap.
1: Well, I mean, that was probably about the uh, human trafficking trade, don't you think? <laughs> oh.
0: oh, now I get it. Noir. It's yeah. dark. dark it's stuff. dark stuff. Um, <laughs> All right. Well, surely that is. Yeah, we're done. We can't, we can't do anything. Please, else with my mother now. Um, please don't see. Please don't eat my mother. How about <laughs> that? Um, Okay, so uh, next month it's February and uh, we will be doing a Valentine's-y kind of themed episode. No, we're not watching Valentine's Day. Uh, we are watching. Wow. Another Corman movie, uh, the St. Valentine's day massacre, which was supposed to be his big, like breakthrough, uh, mainstream movie. It was distributed by 20th century Fox. It's got an amazing cast. Uh, Dick Miller is in it, although I don't think he has any lines. Um, We'll be watching uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, followed by a much more famous movie, which directly references the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Of course, Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. And, uh, you know, even though neither movie is a romantic – a love story, a romantic – Well, movie, I
1: mean, Some Like It Hot kind of is. I mean, Yeah, it is. Okay, I mean, okay. As, as much as you can believe Tony <laughs> Curtis actually cares about anybody, yeah. <clears throat>
0: But there's a lot of linkage uh, between the yes. two around Valentine's Day holidays. So that's our Valentine's Day episode. We hope you'll uh, check back in the first Saturday of the month. And, um, yeah, uh, also I will uh, plug Cinemachine here because um, – the Cinemachine update for the month, which should be up uh, the day after you're listening to this, if if you listen to it on the first Friday of the month, is um, uh, a review of the official Little Shop of Horrors comic adaptation, which was uh, made in 95 by Roger Corman's short-lived comics imprint, uh, Cosmic Comics. And it's surprisingly not bad, so uh, check out my review of that if you're in the mood for even more Little Shop whatnot and um that's uh that about does it so uh for an alan smithy podcast this has been matt
1: and this has been andrew
0: and uh thanks for listening
1: We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Best of an Alan Smithy podcasts. This is Karen Matthews, good evening.